We've been studying the book of Jude a number of weeks. The book of Jude addresses the need to contend for the faith, to stand up for what we believe to be the truth of the Word of God. We find in our text that to contend for the faith does not lead into strife and division, but rather quite the opposite. Strife and division happens or occurs when people do not really contend or stand up for the faith. So in the book of Jude, it tells us we're to contend for the faith because there are people that will deny or reject the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking at false teachers that deny or reject the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then that is transferred onto rejecting the authority, not only of Jesus Christ, but of his people, of his leaders, of his church. And the verse that we are considering today, namely Jude 1, verse 11, there are three people that are mentioned. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have acted the way that Cain did. And we spent a week looking at the life of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. And we looked at the greed that is often associated with false teachers and how they demonstrate that same kind of greed that Balaam manifested. And then thirdly, it says, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now that's all it says, that these people perish in the same kind of rebellion that Korah entered into. Now, as we read the New Testament, and as Jude and many books of the New Testament are written to the Jewish people, they often had a better understanding of the Word of God than does the Gentiles. And yes, many times even had better understanding of the Old Testament than we ourselves do. So we're going to take some time this morning looking at the life of Korah. What are we to learn from the life of Korah and the rebellion that he led? Actually, I'm going to take three Sundays on the life of of Korah because I think it's very, very pertinent to us today. We are blessed in our church. We have a lot of peace. We have a lot of unity. I'm not aware of any strife or division or schism that exists among us. But we certainly want that to continue. We certainly want that to be, permeate the entirety of the life of our church. But we all know churches that are rife with strife and division and hardship and difficulty. So this morning, I want us to consider, first, the thinking that leads to rebellion. What was going on in the mind of Korah to lead a rebellion against Moses, which was ultimately a rebellion against God. Then next week, we're going to look at the form that rebellion takes. What did Korah do in seeking to rebel against Moses and ultimately against God? And then thirdly, what was the result? What happened? What effect did it have upon the nation of Israel when Korah sought to lead this rebellion against Moses and against God. So this morning, we are going to begin with looking at the thinking 
that leads to rebellion. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 16, which is actually going to be our, our text this, this morning. Numbers 16. And uh, if you'd like to read in order to prepare for the morning's message, I would encourage you the next two weeks to look at Numbers 16, 17, and uh, 18. But especially Numbers 16 and 17 as we focus in on Korah and the rebellion that he led. So this morning, the proposition is to consider the thinking that led to Korah's rebellion so that we would guard against such thinking in our own lives. That we would see danger signs. If we begin to think in a similar fashion as Korah thought. So what did Korah think that led to his spirit of rebellion? Well, first, Korah thought that he was being denied a position that was rightly due to him. He was being denied a position that was rightly due him. In the mind of Korah, he could lay a claim upon the priesthood of the tabernacle. Now, look with me at Numbers chapter 16, reading at verse 1. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. Many times we are tempted to just glance over the genealogies that we find, especially in the Old Testament. They look like a, a lot of names to us. But those genealogies are always purposeful. They trace a lineage for a reason. And if you notice here that Korah's lineage is traced through Kohath to Levi. Levi was the tribe from which the priests would come. Aaron and Moses were both Levites. Exodus 4.14, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? So they were both Levites. They could trace their lineage back to Levi, but from different families that went back to Levi. Korah through Kohath to Levi, but the point was that he was a descendant of the tribe from which the priesthood would come. And so, as he looked at Moses and Aaron, he felt deprived because he was not able to share in that priesthood. He thought that he was being denied a position that rightfully belonged to him. Then the co-conspirators are also listed in verse 1. Now, Kor, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, then along with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. So, basically, there are two tribes, a small portion of those tribes, that initially are involved in this rebellion. Korah, descendants of Levi, and then these other 
individuals who trace their lineage back to Reuben. And if you remember, Reuben is the firstborn of the sons of Jacob. If you remember, the twelve sons of Jacob become the twelve tribes of Israel. Reuben was the oldest or firstborn son of Jacob. And it was customary in the Old Testament that the firstborn son would have a double inheritance over all the other sons. He was the most important son. He was to be the most respected son. He was to be the leader in the patriarchal family. And so here are descendants of Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, who could look at this priesthood and ask the question, why aren't I getting double respect? Why don't I have a more prominent position than what I enjoy because I'm a descendant of Reuben? So both of them, Korah and these other individuals, looked at the priesthood and came at it with two different perspectives, but both of them thinking that they had a right to this. One, because they were descendants of Levi. The other, because they were descendants of Reuben. So they were dissatisfied. Lesson. We must guard against viewing another person as occupying a position that is rightly our own. We need to be aware of the kind of presumptuous thinking that can be manifested in which individuals become upset when they don't occupy a particular office or position in the church and view themselves as being somehow neglected, mistreated, overlooked, or taken advantage of. So people can sit in a church and as leaders emerge within the church, become upset as they look at their own lives and what could be claims for leadership, such as an elder is established and someone sits there and says, you know, I've been in this church a lot longer than that person has been in the church. I've been attending here for years. This person a lot less. Or another can say, I have more training. I have more education. I have more experience. Another might say, I'm older. I am more mature. I have gray hairs to prove my years of faithful service. And another may say, I am more spiritual. I pray a lot more than people realize. I give a lot more to the church than anybody knows. I deserve to be in that position. That's the first inkling that something is running amok. When people are becoming dissatisfied and believe that they are being denied an opportunity to exercise leadership in the church, that they view 
as rightly belonging to them. They're going to be upset. Number two. What was the next step in Korah's thinking that led to rebellion? Well, Korah thought that Moses and Aaron were usurping other people's authority. Korah thought that Moses and Aaron were selfishly accumulating to themselves too much power. And so the plot thickens. Verse 2. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation. I'm going to deal with that next week. Chosen in the assembly, men of renown. But notice what Korah and then these other 250 people have to say. They accused Aaron and Moses of usurping authority. Verse 3. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough. You have gone far enough. The NIV translates this, You have gone too far. That's what their view was. That Moses and Aaron had gone too far. That they had abused the authority that they possessed from God. They had overstepped their bounds. And now they were requiring of people things that went beyond the scope of what was appropriate and proper. They accuse Aaron and Moses of thinking that they are better than anyone else. Look at verse 3. You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. They said to Aaron and Moses, what makes you better than anybody else? Why should you be the leader? Why should everybody listen to you? Everyone is holy. Everyone the Spirit of God is at work in. We are equals, they say to Moses. And therefore, Moses, you don't have any right to exercise authority over us. We should be equals. We should be equals. They, Korah, review and cohorts, view Aaron and Moses as having exalted themselves in order simply to make other people their servants. Look at the end of verse 3. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? The word to exalt means to lift up or to promote. It is true that Moses exercised a position of great prominence. He was up front. He delivered the law. He judged the people. He served as God's spokesman. There is no question he was in charge. There was no question who the leader was in the nation of Israel. It was Moses. But these rebellious individuals were saying, but is that appropriate? Is that right? Should he be the spokesman? Should he be the leader? Should he be exercising this kind of authority 
over others. Is it true that, that Moses cherished this prominence, this leadership, this authority? Is it true that he was a dictator and that he loved to have people under his thumb and that he was just out to promote himself? Well, in actuality, nothing could have been farther from the truth. Two things illustrate that. One is found in Exodus chapter 32 when God offers to make a nation out of Moses and his descendants. And he rejects that offer and continues to intercede for the people. Another instance is given right in this book, and the book of Numbers holds together in a a very tight and purposeful fashion. Uh, It's tough to take these chapters and not want to expand and expand and expand because they, they teach so much. But back in Numbers chapter 11, we find an incident. You don't need to turn there, but we find an incident in which the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out upon certain people. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon certain people, some have gone and are with Moses, and two of the people are still back in the camp. And the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, and and when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, they begin to prophesy in the camp. They begin to proclaim the word of God in the camp. They begin to be the spokesman for God in the camp. What Moses had always done, now they were beginning to do. And so we read this. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, answered and said, Moses... My Lord, restrain them. Moses, stop them. Don't let them do this. Remember, Joshua is Moses' attendant. Joshua is going to be the next leader in Israel after Moses' death. And he says, Moses, you've got to put an end to this. Stop them from prophesying. That's what you do. And here's Moses' response. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses said, are you jealous for me? You think I'm upset because God has decided that he's going to use some other people in the nation of Israel to speak for him? You think that somehow upsets me? Moses says, nothing could be further from the truth. I wish everybody was a prophet. I wish everyone enjoyed the privileges that I enjoy. He wasn't about exalting himself. He was doing what God would have him to do. Application. We must be very careful of the motives that we ascribe to people. Things are not always as they seem. Oftentimes, oftentimes, people in places of leadership are accused of being proud, of being manipulative, of wanting authority for authority's sake. That's dangerous thinking. When we think that the people who 
are over us in the church are over us with an agenda. An agenda of self-advancement. Of an agenda of self-service. Of an agenda to promote themselves. That kind of thinking is going to lead to strife and division. We need to believe that people receive and exercise authority in the church as a means of serving God. The scripture says, if a man desires the office of a bishop or an elder, he desires a good thing. But we're to use that as a means of service. And certainly Moses did use the responsibilities and privileges that he enjoyed as a means of serving God. And we need to see that leadership in the life of the church is intended to be a means of serving God, not of self-promotion. Thirdly, closely related, what was the next step in Korah's thinking that led to rebellion among God's people? Well, it was thinking that leaders are established through naturalistic means as opposed to God's ordination. Let me say that again. Thinking that leaders are established through naturalistic means as opposed to God's ordination. Korah saw Moses and Aaron as occupying their position in Israel as a result of their own cunning and craftiness. Look at verse 3. The words, you have gone far enough. And then at the end of verse 3, so why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Numbers 16, 13. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land of flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us? They view Moses' leadership as being achieved through naturalistic ends. That he had finagled, he had maneuvered, he had manipulated his way into a place of authority. And they rejected the notion that this was, in fact, God at work. That's going to lead to strife and division. When we believe that a person assumes authority out of manipulation, out of their own cunning and craftiness and movement as opposed to the work of God. In reality, it was God who established Moses and Aaron in their roles. Look at verses 4 and 5. When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose. He will bring near to himself. Verse 6. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your company. Put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. So now Moses lays the same accusation against them that they laid against him. 
That is, that they are overstepping their bounds. They're going farther than what God would have them to go. So here is the impasse. Who's overstepping their bounds? Is it Moses and Aaron, or is it the sons of Korah and these other rebels? We're going to look in two weeks about how God makes it clear, absolutely clear. There's going to be great destruction that results. There's going to be the rod of Aaron is going to bud. Uh, Every tribal leader is going to bring their staff. And God is going to cause this staff of Aaron to miraculously flower overnight to show that indeed Aaron is God's choice. Well, it's a little difficult today because there aren't too many budding rods around here or in any church to be able to say, ah, here it is clear, here is the will of God. But here's the application. Surely there is a promise process of human agency through which any leadership comes to power. Let me say it again. Surely there is a process of human agency through which any leadership comes to power. You can always see a human element to it. You can always see the people of God involved in this process. So that when David becomes king, it's Samuel who anoints him. So that people have to believe that what Samuel is doing, he is doing at the will of God. But they have to take that by faith. This is what Samuel is doing as he anoints uh, David to be king. And we can look through at all the examples in the scripture and there's, there's always human agency involved. What we need to realize is that it's not just human agency, however. It's also a sovereign working of God. But we are going to run amok if we fail to look at the sovereign working of God and only look at the human agency. For example, in our church, this process works through committees. And these committees select people. And votes are taken. And you can look at that as a purely humanistic process. This is what people do. People appoint committees. People select other people. And votes are taken. Or you can say, here is the means by which a sovereign God is going to work in our midst. And we believe that there are going to be committees that want to do and serve the will of God and that they are going to prayerfully consider what is done and people are going to be selected, and these are individuals who want to serve with the right motives and the right intentions and the right values, and that we come together as a congregation and affirm or deny together whether or not we see these qualities evidenced in the life of an individual. And when that final vote is taken, this is the will of God. Those are two distinct ways of viewing what happens 
in the life of the church. And Korah and the others only saw the human element. And they rejected the divine, sovereign will of God. Which then brings us to the book of Jude and why Korah is given to us as an example of one who rejects the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because he rejects the leadership that God has established. And what these false teachers do is stir up strife in the church by rejecting the leadership that God has established. Now, the last time I spoke to you, I spoke to you on, about Balaam. And I used as the modern example of Balaam, uh, Harold Camping, and his prediction that the Lord was going to return in May. Remember that? The other thing I told you about Harold Camping was, is that he had said that every church, without exception, every church had become apostate. And you shouldn't be a part of the church. What did Harold Camping do? Encourage people to reject the authority of the leadership of the church. Every church. Out of hand. Just dismiss it. That's what false teachers do. They try to get people to rise up and reject the leadership of the church. 